0: If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to Spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately.
1: This week's guest is Jess Cataret. Jess is an environmental advocate who currently serves as the field director for the Conservation Voters of Pennsylvania the statewide political voice for the environment. In 2020, she helped turn the tides of the national election by managing one of the largest electoral campaigns an environmental organization has ever run. As the youngest field director in the agency's history, she was voted as one of Mainline's Next Gen 15 Under 30 and comes with a wealth of knowledge around all things environmentalism and life. In this week's episode, she shares about the lessons she learned as an environmental field director in this year's election campaign and how she navigated the challenges of leading a statewide call center effort. She explains many of the complexities around environmental issues, as well as the importance of rethinking our cultural systems and implementing environmentally friendly initiatives as soon as possible. We also dive into the potential solutions on the horizon and Jess's personal story of how she found her calling within environmentalism. Please note that we experienced some audio quality concerns towards the end of the episode, so, please bear with us and enjoy the show. Thank you.
0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues.
1: My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Jess, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks so much, guys.
1: I'm happy to be here. Excited to chat with you today. So we wanted to start off with one of your most recent efforts, most recent accomplishments, and that was leading this call center effort through the most recent national election, on your questionnaire, you mentioned that you had 150,000 conversations around all things environmental and politics. I was wondering if you could walk us through that experience and some of the big things that came up in all of these conversations. Yeah,
2: I'd be happy to. Aiden. thanks. Yeah, it was it was quite the endeavor, and I, I certainly didn't do it alone. But I was honored to oversee. Like you said, one of these largest operations would turn virtual due to the COVID pandemic. So that was another hurdle there. So we had um, over almost ninety virtual callers across the state that, from August through November, through the election, helped us reach Pennsylvanians and. This was a challenge as we only, you know, we could knock doors, we could only call folks on the phone and text them. But we were able to reach 150,000 Pennsylvanians attempting 3 million of them to talk with them make sure that they were set up and ready to vote for the pro environment candidates on the ballot in November. And so we were making sure to focus on the issues they cared about which for many of them is the environment certainly but if folks had other things that were driving them we wanted to connect with them on those issues and ensure that they had all of the information at their fingertips whether that was the candidates websites because of course everyone knew who was running for president but could you tell me who was running for state rep and state senator right so we wanted to be some of that backup information Plus, it was the first year that Pennsylvanians could vote by mail, and so we wanted to ensure that everyone had the information they needed to make their voices heard at the election and vote safely and vote the way that they wanted to. And so it was seven days a week, phone center, uh, right from our living rooms, right? We tried to use Slack as a back channel and keep folks motivated and connected, Uh, but it it was a huge undertaking. And... While we didn't see the wins that we were hoping for in the State House here in Pennsylvania, gerrymandering sadly plays a large part in elections, we were incredibly happy to play a role in bringing Pennsylvania home for the win for President Joe Biden.
0: Every electoral election seasons, I'm always conflicted because A, I have a lot of empathy for phone bankers because I also have accrued hours and hours and hours on phone banking, trying to increase uh, civic engagement, trying to help galvanize for important causes. On the yeah. other hand, when I'm on the other side, receiving all these 10 to 15 unsolicited phone calls from four different nonpartisan organizations, obviously I'm annoyed, but at the same time, it is a, such an integral and important role for the grassroots campaign. And it's, it's like the true, like the gritty work, right? You're, you're truly in the trenches and it's extremely not gratifying. There's not a lot of recognitions for phone bankers but they are the, the most integral gear, part of the entire equation that helps run. I've been reading Obama's latest autobiography of Promised Land. And he talks about he attributes his success, even becoming the senator for as young as he was at the time, being the first African-American and being the first president, he attributes his success to the campaign effort, to the staff, to the phone bankers, to the grassroots staff. So, uh, But throughout that, uh, I'm wondering, I'm sure, by speaking with 150,000 voters, right? That must have been an experience as itself. From that experience, what are some of the most important issues that they've mentioned or you've asked? And I would love to ask for you to elaborate on that collective feedback they've received.
2: Sure. Yeah, so first of all, I totally agree with you, Ben, right? Phone bankers and these, and campaign workers are, are how, you know, our integral part in a lot of ways how we push for change in the political and electoral realm and even with advocacy as well in turn on issue advocacy i think after talking with folks this fall it was a really difficult 2020 so the responses were all across the board right folks were incredibly worried about their families COVID pandemic was the number one issue that folks have reported back that they were worried about and that makes a lot of sense right And then close up, the economy and the environment were the next issues that folks had reported back that they were worried about, because we knew that our climate could not take another four years of the president that we had. We'd already lost significant time to make an impact on climate change, and our economy was suffering from an awful recession due to this pandemic. Folks were losing their jobs, losing their family members, and it was a a really difficult time. So... To be honest we had to offer our callers a lot of resources to help them through this again you know we're talking about some of your time your experiences in call centers and it's the most fun when you're surrounded by your phone bankers and you're able to you know celebrate those wins together and make it through those tough phone calls together and our callers were in their own living rooms right trying to keep their positive spirit while hearing negative story after heartbreaking story from real Pennsylvanians that we were talking to it was really tough to be honest uh, but you know i think folks showed what we would expect which is that you know they care about what's closest to them they care about their families they care about the well-being of their loved ones and Uh, last year was a really hard year for that and a difficult one to look forward to but i think the election offered a lot of positive opportunities for change some of which we got some of which we didn't and we'll keep pushing for them but those were the three main topics that we definitely heard back from folks about
1: yeah there's definitely a lot of value in that experience itself both interacting externally with the voters and then internally with people that are so like-minded and have that same kind of mission at the front of their the front of their mind so considering the challenges that you met i'm definitely curious as to like how you pushed through with that both on the external front of like not to say someone isn't cooperating in a conversation but how do you like keep morale high both internally with your own self and then even with your teammates was it just all believing in that same cause having that underlying why of helping the environment like what was kind of the day-to-day getting through those difficult days uh what did that process look like for you
2: Yeah, sure. It's it's a great question. And listen, if you find the secret (laughs) answers to this, you let (laughs) me know. But, you know, I can certainly share some of the tools that we used in the fall. So we, like I said, this was seven days a week. So every single day at 3 p.m., we would kick off the calls together. And so, you know, everyone's certainly calling on their own, but... We would come together in a big Zoom and remind one another why we're doing this. We would always have one news story or one opportunity that we could change if we get if we win this election, um, and we would always re-motivate ourselves every day to make sure that we had that that real reason of why we were doing this at the forefront of our minds to get us through those hard calls. Because, you know, you said if you've got a call where someone's not cooperative, of course people aren't cooperative. You know, Ben, you mentioned it's frustrating getting calls from multiple organizations. And I do wanna say we collaborate with other organizations as much as we possibly can. But of course, within a year as important as 2020, there's a lot of groups doing that great work, right? And so, not everyone's cooperative, and so you do gotta have some some tools to kind of get you through the hard times. So, a couple of things we did. If you're, I'm sure many folks are familiar with Slack, so we would have back channels on Slack for us to kind of commiserate together if we had some weird or interesting calls. Um, I'm not sure how much call time y'all have been doing recently, but there's a lot of really interesting robo killers out there. So you'll find a call that's like actually a recording of. Hillary Clinton or uh, Barack Obama, and it, there's a lot of interesting things that happen. But you know, on the back end, using Slack to celebrate those things, or even you know, to share the successes that we had had. So, if we had a really good conversation, we asked for folks to share it with one another, um, so that we could use that to kind of keep going through those late evening hours as we were calling folks. And then we also had some mental health check-ins, right? We provided some trainings and tools for folks to use to take care of themselves because this was a hard time for everyone. And Ben, like you said, it's not easy work. And so providing folks as much tools as we can and as much compassion and understanding when things came up. And if really difficult calls came up, we encouraged folks to come to us and, and like take a break and take some time away. And our shift managers and managers were trained to help them through that process and then help to re-motivate them and get back on it, whether later that evening or the next day. So it definitely was a really a test to how you've got to keep the human at the forefront of your managing, right? Like, yes, this was a massive operation, but ultimately we were here to take care of people so that they could talk to people and make sure that we were all taking care of ourselves collectively when we are voting in the election in November.
0: I think I view politics as a whole, but in this specific case, grassroots campaign effort or phone banking effort as a training center for patients. Right? Because politics and advocacy work is, in my personal view, one of the most delayed gratification outlet, period, right? And I always tell people and Aiden and myself, we talked about this uh, during our brainstorming sessions that I need to be less pessimistic on the mic because I'm extremely pessimistic or I guess uh, I'm optimistic, but I'm a little bit cynical, but I always tell people because I've worked in the policy making realm for the past four years, especially as a program manager at the largest NGO in Chester County. What I mean by this, although I'm cynical about the process, I'm always optimistic about the outcome because I could see the title change going towards the right directions on a macro level. I see that over and over again, but the process is such a grunt and tedious work and I try to anchor myself so I don't lose my faith in the process, right? But for you, Jess, you have experiences both as a part of the grassroots effort as a staff and to now being on the one of the senior staff members and being a field director. I'm sure you've seen both sides of the spectrum. You've seen the overvisions, the o- oversight of the process, seeing to fruition, and also the impatience you felt when you're in that gear, in that grunt work we um, we'll love to pick at your brain about your perspective and your takeaway from the entire policymaking process, your advocacy work for the past four or five years, and your takeaway from your patients.
2: You know, I appreciate the question. It's a great one, Ben. I think there have certainly been times in my experience that I've gotten run down and didn't think change was possible or just saw the change that we know that we need get stopped time and time again due to greed or profit or ego and it's heartbreaking to watch and all the more heartbreaking if you've been fighting if you're the one that's been trying to you know put in the endless hours and fighting for that change to happen I don't have a great answer for you as to I, I appreciate your optimism I, I should say that I appreciate your optimism about the outcome and your pessimism about the process I can relate to that. And I think the thing that keeps me going is I know that this is the change we, we need. We have to institute, we have to for our future generations. And I continually try to hark back on where we were just a couple hundred years or a couple thousand years ago. I try to keep in mind how far humans have come in such a short span of time, how it might be unrealistic to think that our psychology or our emotional capacity and understanding of things on such a global level would change in such a short time too. So I try to remind myself about the past, knowing that change is possible. And I try to rely, you know, I, yes, I have to stay motivating for the the callers or the voters or the volunteers we're working on. I have to be able to stay positive and motivate them. But usually it, it's a cross-pollination almost, right? Like their passion and their motivation continues to, to inspire my own. But I would be lying if I said I sometimes didn't get a little hopeless about the future perhaps, but I know that there are millions of people like us trying to push for the change we know we need as well. And I continue to hope that we can overcome greed and the ego and the politics of the
1: thing. Yeah, certainly. And I think community is one of the ideas that's really coming up for me, both in your stories about the call center specifically, having your co-workers to kind of lean on and talk through those difficult times, but then also just community of like-minded people that believe in the same things and really accept and acknowledge that fixing the environment is one of the most important issues in today's, today's every day. And I think to a lot of listeners, and especially for everyone sitting in the room right now, it's kind of an, I guess, obvious statement that we need to change the environment. That was one of the big stressors that you just put out. But I was wondering, from your expertise, I was wondering if you could just kind of like unpack that a little bit, I guess, why it's such the important and imminent kind of conversation. You know, I think everyone knows it's important, but really, not just important, but the time being now, kind of like an immediate issue, you know, we can fix the environment or the economy 10 years down the road, but the environment, who knows if 10 years is down the road. So I was wondering if you kind of just unpack that a little bit of why the environment and why now?
2: Yeah, I'm gonna go first and state the obvious, which is that, of course, to continue doing anything that we're doing, of course, we need clean air to breathe, clean water to drink, and a healthy and safe, livable climate to live in, to, to raise our families, um, to work in. Right now, a lot, if not many of the systems that we operate within are harming those very things that we need, right? Every single day, people drive cars on the road and those cars are outputting exhaust that is adding to our greenhouse gas emissions in the world. And every single day, we are powering our homes with fossil fuels that unfortunately, even though, you know, these resources sparked an industrial revolution that put humanity on a new path in the past hundred years, and they were need, and it was brought us great benefit in that regard. Now, we know, and unfortunately, some have known for decades, that the very things that we're doing to power, feed, and transport our society are, in fact, harming us, and they are at a huge detriment to the earth's systems. And so right now we are really pushing the limit on how much carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases our earth's systems can handle. And most of the time, the earth's natural systems recycle its own emissions and put everything at a balance that allows for life on earth and us as well to live in a healthy environment. But we have pushed the systems so hard so fast that unfortunately and we're already seeing the effects um, we are going to make lasting effects on this planet and so we do need to make some drastic changes within the next decade if we are to mitigate this it's already too late to say that we won't have an effect how could seven billion humans not have an effect on planet earth right of Mm -hmm. course we are affecting planet earth and of course we're going to affect ecosystems but there will not be an ecosystem untouched by human action, unfortunately, because we are warming the planet. And yes, of course the climate has changed before. Of course that has happened, but we are doing it at such a rate that no species on earth will be able to adapt. The planet has certainly changed before, but over the course of thousands of years, giving species time to adapt and adjust their Mechanisms, the processes they need to stay alive. This is going to happen so fast, sadly. It will be the sixth mass extinction. And if humans aren't careful, could potentially be included in that extinction, right? These storms that are coming, we are not ready for them. Look at Texas. Texas has no idea what to do with this storm right now. And there are many facets as to why that has happened. But one of them is that we are, in a sense, as humans, almost editing the Earth's natural systems to a point that we're not ready for, we're not ready for warmer temperatures across the earth, we are not ready for rising sea levels, we are not ready for these really intense, more frequent natural disasters that will unfortunately, you know, harm those that are already marginalized and already are struggling. So unfortunately, at the brunt of all of this, black and brown communities will face the negative impacts of climate change disproportionately. And sadly, the folks that will face the brunt of climate change are not necessarily the ones that have caused it. It is developed or, you know, developed nations, right? Consumeristic, individualistic, these Western nations that are pushing climate change to become a real issue. And this is going to be a huge humanitarian crisis in our lifetime where, unfortunately, the poorest of our world are going to suffer the most for a problem that they had the least to deal with, the costs of, and it's unfair. And I think that, you know, those of us that are privileged to live in developed nations, of course, individual actions are necessary and helpful, but we all need to push for collective change, right? Us, you know, Aiden, you and I, Um, Recycling every day for the rest of our lives and for going meat and for going driving cars is not going to solve this, right? We need to work together um, as a community, as a global community truly at this point in the game to help push the systems to change, to renewable energy, to less farming and agriculture. We need to not mass produce meat that we now know. Unfortunately, you know, that sector of agriculture is contributing further to climate change. And we are the most adaptable species on the planet. We can do this. We have the ingenuity. We have the resources. And unfortunately, we just need to build the political will to do so. Because right now, unfortunately, I think folks that want to keep the status quo and continue raking in money from fossil fuels are are reigning it all right now. So we need to push to change that together. Otherwise, I fear for what, what kind of world our children will have to deal with.
0: I'm going to state the obvious, but for everyone, like those are not just Jess's opinions, right? These are facts. These are actual circumstances that we concurrently are dealing with as a society, as a globe. So, um, and obviously that's something that this podcast, Ada and myself stand behind and support. And I myself is also a uh, pescatarian in support. But because environmentalism is such a vast and complex and nuanced topic, I don't think Uh, any of us are equipped to fully address the manner so that's why i want to preface saying that we are sticking to the more macro lens and obviously there's many different vehicles and avenues to get there collectively through you know dietary preferences through carbon emissions recycling through offsetting your you know flights or your there's so many avenues to get there and we're not going to discuss all that because we just don't have the capacity to encompass everything in between so i just want to preface the listeners so I think the, one of the biggest reasons why humans are so, even collectively and on an individual level, have difficulty reconciling with the damage related to climate change, I think it's because it's so far into the future, or at least it feels like it, right? And in Robert Greene's book, Laws of Human Nature, he talks about uh, humans' innate evolution traits and our ability to not have that foresight is deeply ingrained in our DNA. If you think about it, Jess, it's not that long ago that we were all residing and you know cohabiting as tribal creatures. And when you're in that tribal environment, all you have to worry about, according to evolutionary DNA and our evolution path, is the imminent danger. Like what's right in front of us, the the animals that's nearby, the predators. So we never, as a society and as a human species, had to. Think about a cause that's important to us, that's removed maybe 100 years, 500 years, even 1,000 years, 10,000 years, right? And that's what Robert Greene argues. It's not, it's not that humans don't want to care about climate change, but it's in our DNA that we're not supposed to have that much foresight. And I was talking about this conversation with my girlfriend, and we were talking about proactivity versus reactivity, right? And if you think about the human design how our brain like a brain is one of our two epicenters, right? There's a brain and there's the heart, but if you look at your brain, your brain's like a motherboard. Your brain's not actively making any decisions. Your brain is not proactive. What I mean by that is like there's neurons all throughout your fingertips and by touching the surface, by touching the wall, by touching or interacting your environment, your electrons on your fingertips and your bodies fire signals into your brain. Your brain is then delegating different tasks based on the signals that's received to make sure you have a functional body or to that you're, you're being functional. So what that means is on a most fundamental neurological level, your brain is constantly literally reacting. Like we on a DNA level, on a genetic level, we are reacting as a species. That's insane, right? That means we are not meant to, we are not designed to be proactive. And so I think you see where my question going with this is, in the policy and the advocacy around proactivity versus reactivity is something I'm extremely passionate about. And you know, that is the only way to address the root causes. That is the only way to instill change on a fundamental level. Because I've always wondered why are humans, why are we so reactive all the time with environments, with social justice issues, with like any issues that we have, we're always reacting. Healthcare, we're reacting. Criminal justice, we're reacting. So um, I wanted to ask you about the whole proactivity approach that you're hoping to Take, or that your your current organization has taken under the supervision of you as a field director?
2: Well, I think if we were having this conversation 20, 30 years ago, it would be more in line, right? It would seem like this is a more proactive stance that we need to take. But sadly, we've gotten to the point now, right, where I can count on people to be reactive to what's already happening right? Like we're already seeing some of the effects of climate change. So for example, here in Pennsylvania, we're the number one leading state for diagnoses of Lyme's disease. And that's because of the growth of insect-borne diseases, right? And we now have increased downpours, have increased by 72% since 1950. And folks are dealing with flooding issues and we're just not used to dealing with rain falling. So we are now in this place where, with storms like hurricanes, wildfires, random polar vortexes going all the way down to Texas, right? we now have a place where I think you're absolutely correct that humans are not used to being proactive and that could certainly speak to why we didn't take action previously on this. But now, in my opinion, we are in a place where folks are forced to be reactive to what we see at play. It's not nearly enough time. It's not, you know, as as scientists have been warning us for decades that, you know, if we waited until we were seeing things happen, then it was probably too late for us to really mitigate the issues that are at hand here. But in my opinion, I think it certainly is the field director, which, right, my role is to help oversee our staff that helps to mobilize the grassroots volunteers and members that we need to grow an environmental movement across Pennsylvania that can urge their elected officials to do better, that can quite literally, ideally, right, vote pro-environmentalists into office, up and down the ballot, all the way down to the local level. And I think that certainly our jobs are easier now that climate change is a little more visceral because you're right i don't think you know having trying to do this before our lifetimes was probably in t- so difficult and went against our brains and our dna in trying to say look you have to try to care about an issue that you may or may not see even in your lifetime but i think we're seeing it now and so certainly in my experience in organizing and being an environmental advocacy, there's been a surge because of exactly what you're saying. People are reacting to what they're seeing, um, and there's not a need to be as proactive that would have gone against, uh, gone against our grain, so to speak, um, because we're seeing such disasters and such levels of impact in today's day and age. Um, so I do think that... It plays a huge role in how not just in the environmental movement, but in the other movements that we've seen, I think you're absolutely right in that humans are a reactive species and hopefully that's not to our detriment, I would hope that our intellectual abilities would take us further, um, especially now that we've got such technological improvements in our scientific abilities to see what's coming, I would hope that it helps turn the tides a bit, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts as well perhaps on it and if there was any other piece of that question that i missed let me know
1: i mean i'd kind of just like to echo what you said of like we're forced to be reactive now i mean if you told me 10 years that or 10 years ago that the entire state would be on of california would be on fire for like three years in a row for people to wake up that climate change was a thing like i almost wouldn't be able to make sense of it but I mean, similarly with the, I mean, we're filming this on the weekend of these Texas storms that you've alluded to as well. I mean, an entire state sized ice storm that they've never seen snow of this caliber before. I think these are just very clear indicators that things aren't going well, that things are imminent, and we are most forced to be reactive. And for me, the, I guess, side industry that comes up that virtually is acting in the same way as healthcare, and I kind of see it as sick care, right? People just trying to put bandages and bandages on top of any kind of disease because they can slap a pharmaceutical with a price tag on it rather than looking at the specific disease itself or the specific, you know, trauma or symptoms that might be coming up but, you know, they can't necessarily put a price tag on a more holistic kind of approach. So I'd like to echo kind of both of what you guys said in that as humans, we are reactive, not programmed to be proactive, but eventually those timelines kind of dwindle down and we're forced to be reactive. So I think we are kind of seeing that. I mean, similar to the environment, we're seeing that in healthcare. I think people are just kind of waking up to the fact that we have to address these issues because they are more imminent. I mean, especially with the COVID situation that we've all just seen. And I would like to zoom in a little bit on to what you've alluded to as the human potential. Like, you know, there are a lot of smart scientists, smart technologies, good things being occurring at this time. And one of the things that Ben and I have talked a lot about is the CO2 emissions that have decreased just with the whole world going on pause. And the optimist in me likes to look at that fondly of what was it? Like, 12 months of not doing anything, a lot of positive change was happening. And I'm curious for your thoughts around here. It shows that if we just stop doing the wrong things, not even start doing the right things, but that like change is possible. So I was wondering how, how you've been thinking about that. I mean, I don't know a lot of the stats. I'm sure you're a lot more in the weeds of what's been happening around that change. But how has that affected the way you're looking at kind of the future horizon?
0: yeah and also for the listeners it was 17 percent carbon footprint reduction in six months
2: i think what we witnessed was incredible and and never before seen right a global widespread response to this critical crisis that we viewed in our forefront right COVID 19 stealing our loved ones away from us and and all of us came together most of us came together and tried our best america might could have done some things differently certainly but tried our best to mitigate this crisis response, right? It inspired me because no one would have ever thought that that was possible for this global response. And to think that we could all be doing the same thing for climate change is a beautiful thought. And I fear that it, that it won't happen though, right? Because COVID-19 is this like, It's clearly in front of us. It is, and you would think that folks think climate change is clearly in front of us, but as we know, this isn't true, right? It's still a debate and we, and thank you Ben earlier for noting it's not a debate. This is fact and I kind of have two answers in that. One, I thought that the response was amazing. I thought that the decrease in emissions was needed. It gave the world time to breathe. I think also though, that it wasn't enough. I mean, 17%, that's great, love that. But it's we know it's not where we need to get, and so I think like more widespread systemic change is needed, and we've seen through a global response of last year that perhaps it's possible. I would love to see the world come together like they did around COVID nineteen with the same urgency, with the same fervor, with the same dedication of resources to climate change, and I think in some elements that's happening. Right, I'm, of course I'm. More than happy to see the U.S. rejoin the Paris Climate Accords, but until we treat climate change as, you know, and put it on the same level as perhaps a crisis like COVID-19, I'm not sure that we'll ever see a response to that end, but it's wonderful to see it. It's wonderful to see it's possible. Again, the 17% wasn't enough and deeper change will even be, will be more necessary for a disaster for the predicament like climate change like we find ourselves in.
1: For me, the thing that really jumps out is why climate change and COVID are getting such different responses. And for me, what really comes up is the influence that media has on it. And that almost has me thinking through the thesis that you sent over of how it's portrayed in news, just the whole relationship between news media and science at the end of the day. So I was curious if you could kind of speak to that a little bit, like we've seen The entire world, countries aside, issues aside, all kind of come together around fighting COVID and how that could happen around climate change. Like, If, say, media were to come together and kind of put the same light on climate change that was spotlighted on COVID, how do you think about that? I mean, maybe speak to your thesis a little bit or just the media's role in necessitating the importance and responding to the climate change issues.
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to. I think we're in a tough spot nowadays that, you know, we have to be mindful of what we referring to when we say media, right? Mass media is no longer, that is not news. That is sensationalized media that they have to earn money, for, right? It's a business. And so what is highlighted on the news is what will keep listeners on for the ads so they can make money, right? And I get that that's needed, but it has driven our news media to be quite polarized, to sensationalize things. And so I'll admit, I'll be the first to admit that I stepped away from the news during COVID-19. It was too much and I, I knew what was happening. I knew what was coming for us and I didn't need the daily reports of the numbers of deaths. But I think one of the reasons that folks resonated so much, you know. folks acted so much differently in response to COVID-19 rather than climate change is, you can die from COVID-19, right? COVID-19 can claim your life and can claim the life of your loved ones. And it's not as a direct connection for climate change, right? It's not like you think, oh, you don't actively think, oh, climate change is a risk to my life and my loved one's lives. And I think that that really speaks to the difference of how folks respond to it. And I think the media certainly plays a huge role. So to speak to the the thesis that Aiden's referring to in college, I was studying environmental science and in the hopes that I could add some, you know, in my lifetime help to add something to the solutions or to how we were going to move past this as humanity and i and i realized the science is very clear and that's when i transitioned and realized the issue is not the science the issue is the communication around the science the issue is the the misinformation that's been provided about the science the advocacy or lack thereof of the advocacy of what needs to happen the solutions that we need to implement and that's why i spent my time in college studying environmental communications, and I partnered with my statistics professor, actually, Dr. Savitz, and we studied how had climate change been portrayed in the news? How was this issue being communicated to people? Uh, And we studied three main news outlets and unfortunately found that there was a very direct political tie and that, you know, news outlets that leaned left or leaned Democratic were representing the climate science well. And unfortunately, Fox News, which is the largest-watched news network in the nation 72 percent of the time was misrepresenting the science around climate change we found that it tied pretty hand in hand to the rates at which americans believed in climate science and so i think there's this great this unbelievably responsibility for the media to correctly report on the issues that are truly facing humans and to not be sucked into political rhetoric or untruthful debates just for for the sake of viewership or the sake of keeping their viewers. And I think that probably in COVID-19, while I couldn't speak to this directly from a data standpoint, because like I said, I I turned off the news, but I don't doubt that news... Stations had to cover this heavily and had to really dive into the fears that were present and the risks associated. I don't doubt that there were differences amongst the news stations on how that occurred. And it would be really interesting to do a similar study, perhaps, of like how did news stations report on COVID 19 and how does this relate to how the American people are feeling about COVID 19 and treating its seriousness. It would be interesting to do a similar study um, as we did with the climate change study. But, you know, I think if we didn't have this threat of a climate crisis hanging over us, and if I didn't feel drawn to helping in this fight, you could certainly find me in the journalism field. I think communicating stories to humans is, you know, an age-old thing that we've done and really necessary for, for human development and evolving. And, once I moved past the environmental science track, I thought, well, maybe I'll make documentaries about climate change, right? Maybe like I'll help communicate this to people. And so I think if we didn't have a looming threat of climate crisis, you could certainly find me trying to bring some integrity back to journalism and ensuring that you know, we really are spreading true factual information that we're not misrepresenting it or sensationalizing it. I think that's been that's played an important role in the coverage of both climate change and COVID-19.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of a interview I watched seven years ago with Denzel Washington. He, he was at a movie red carpet premiere event for his new movie at the time. And one of the journalists was asking How do you feel about the news article saying that you OD'd on heroin last night and you passed away? And Denzel Washington, he chuckled and he said that, you see, this is his words. I'm paraphrasing. He said something about he views journalism as one of the most sacred fields in this world because the entire integrity of democracy is rooted in their profession, right? Because their job is to educate and inform from a very impartial and unbiased standpoint. But that is no longer the case, and he proceeded with saying out, in today's world, if you don't read enough news, or if you don't read enough, you're uninformed. But if you read too much, you're misinformed. And the burden has shifted from the mainstream media onto us as the consumers, which is not a fair shift. Like, how can we, as a normal consumers, even for college-educated folks like us, to Parse through the ubiquitousness and the overwhelming amount of information from both landscapes, from the, both the left and the right. And I think yeah. it talks about how journalism as an entire profession shifted, of course, due to, you know, they have to make a living, they have to pay their bills, and all that's valid. But it still talks about how toxic it has became as a platform overall and how consumers, aka the citizens, who live in a democratic society like us, has been adversely affected by that. But yeah, I share that because and also I want to for the reference for people how powerful that 17% reduction is, because when I shared about the temporary reduction right now, that's it's no longer 70%. Obviously, the temporary reduction has subsided and it's going back up. I lived in China for six years and China, in particular capital, Beijing, as a city has declared state emergency because of their pollution for the past four years. And to people like in the U.S., like Americans have no idea what that means. And let me unpack that for you guys. What that means is over, I I don't even know what population Beijing has, maybe like 12 million, 20 million. It's a staggering high populations. They couldn't leave their apartments and their houses for months at a time because you, you look out outside, you can see the fog and it's all pollution. You can see the toxic air in front of your eyes. And Chinese people in Beijing, they actually had to wear a mask way before COVID hit to protect them against the toxic air and pollutions. And it was a state emergency where people couldn't step outside for months at a time. And numerous Chinese friends of mine, their parents who have the financial backing and the privilege, they actually fled to different countries for six months to avoid the toxic air from Beijing. And after the pandemic hit, those fog completely was eradicated and disappeared. Wow. And that talks about how powerful reactivity can be and unfortunately like productivity always trumps reactivity but in this case reacting to the crisis at hand is still not still better than not reacting and it's so ironic to see china the country that dismisses human crisis and humanitarian effort as a whole became the front runners in advocating for environmental change after the u.s backed out that itself is such a irony but it also talks about how powerful we can be when we decide to make a decision to make a change.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you sharing that experience and bringing that example to the forefront. I know that that's one of the qualms, unfortunately, that we so often hear. I don't know what news station or I don't know what is perpetuating this line, but folks often think, well, we don't need to do anything about our pollution here in America. Like China is is so much worse. And, And, you know, China and India need to clean up their pollution first. And my answer is always they are. They witnessed the effects firsthand. They witnessed how terrible it can be. And they are now the front runners in the investing in renewable energies. They are cleaning up their act. And here in America, we need to be doing the same. And even if they weren't, we still should be doing the same. It's not an okay answer as to why we shouldn't take on our own pollution and, and make positive change for our future generations. But um, you're absolutely right that, that China has unfortunately witnessed those effects of the pollution firsthand. And um, I certainly, my heart goes out to those that have been negatively affected by such staggering levels of pollution to the, to the point that it had to be. Um, such an emergency state, and I hope that we have the forethought here to continue to, to see that, to see that blatant example and to make changes so that God forbid that we turn some of our industrialized areas to the same part here in America.
1: Definitely. What really jumps to me, I mean, this is kind of just my frame that I try and see the environment through is it's one of the few issues that affects every person in this world equally. Regardless of where they live, what they believe, who they are, like, that's just one of like those unifying issues that's going to affect us all in the long term. So I found that lens, I guess, of seeing it as a new way, I suppose, because it no longer allows for that blame shifting that you alluded to or like finger pointing of, hey, China isn't doing this, India isn't doing this. It's like, who cares what other people are doing? It's like we're all in it together at the end of the day. I always come back to the idea of being team human, kind of when asked about my like political ideologies, because I definitely gravitate to the left side, but I think there's benefits and thoughts that shouldn't be dismissed entirely from other ways of thought. Everyone's on team human and just trying to collectively push the best interest of like the world in general, which I think environmentalism is kind of at the cornerstone of kind of creates a lot of better dialogues. and. I'd like to pivot a little bit into kind of your personal experience with the environment.
2: I would love to do that as well. But can we just talk a little bit about what you just said?
1: Sorry. Certainly. No, no apologies needed. Go after it.
2: I do want to just talk a little bit about what you just said, because boy, team human all the way. Love that. Love that idea. But I just think an important key. And you're right that the environment affects every single human on this earth without a doubt, right? We all need air, we all need water. These are necessary things to survive. We all need a safe place. But I just wanna make sure that we understand the environment does not not equal for everyone, right? Like, so Ben just explained how some of the richer folks in Beijing, they could leave. They had the option to pick up and flee the pollution. And so many people did not have that option. They were stuck in the air, That was literally harmful to their health. And I just want to make that quick distinction of that, like, yes, it absolutely affects everyone on this planet, but unfortunately, perpetuated for decades and centuries, right? If something's going on, privileged people can pick up and leave. And it's often poorer folks, which here in America, as we know, our socioeconomic system is closely tied to race relations because we have had systemic racism perpetuated in America for far too long, that unfortunately, negative environmental issues here in America and beyond across the globe disproportionately negatively affect, unfortunately, black and brown communities. And so it is, it does affect everyone, but not necessarily everyone equally. And I just wanted to make that distinction
1: really quick. Definitely. Yeah, really appreciate you catching that because that, I mean, is my own privilege coming up of not thinking that through entirely because you alluded to it earlier of there's a specific population that 10 to 20% of the capitalism driving this problem and then the bottom 80% of people that don't have that choice don't really have any say in the matter. So definitely yeah. deeply appreciate you framing out that perspective because it is really important to isolate the two people causing the problem or... The systems, as you've mentioned, causing the problem, and then the systems and communities that are just at the victimization of those systems coming through. Kind of on that note, I think we've talked a lot about the importance and the problems of climate change, but I'm sure you've also seen the light side of it of, yes, you're empowering people to vote for these representatives, but what are a lot of the regulations or system changes that they're kind of leading for is it mostly centered around renewable energy like i just love to hear the forward looking solutions opportunities of all of these problems that we've just talked about for a little bit that you're excited about that might be coming into like things that people should keep an ear out for as ways of mitigating some of this damage i mean clearly it's a big problem i think a lot of people all recognize the importance of it, but what are some of the ways of moving through this problem that you're seeing coming to light over the last couple years?
2: Yeah, I would love to talk about solutions. And I just want to preface this by saying that I'm going to give some examples of some things that I would hope that we see enacted in the next five to 10 years. But I also want to say that because we have not treated this issue like the crisis that it is we therefore have not gotten the chance to dedicate as much brain power and as much resources as we could so i have no doubt in my mind there are probably so many great ways to mitigate climate change and and the problems we're facing now that we're not even aware of just because simply we have not treated it like the problem it is and therefore might not even know about some of these things but but right off the bat what i can tell you is the very first thing that we have to do Stop subsidizing the fossil fuel industry and so right now we give fossil fuel industries so much of a tax break and so much incentive to continue the status quo here in pennsylvania in 2019 alone we doled out 3.8 billion dollars in subsidies to the fossil fuel industry so the very first step is just making the fossil fuel industry pay their fair share like that's first because the price that we're paying for fossil fuels is not the full price you are not paying for the for the pollution that it causes you are not paying for the health impacts that we are going to suffer so like first and foremost we have to try to sever the ties between our politicians and our fossil fuel industry right now because it is quite literally endangering our health In reverse, we could then subsidize renewable energy industries in the same way that we are subsidizing fossil fuel industries, so that we could incentivize renewable energies to get the kickstart that they deserve. I know people think that solar and wind power are not gonna cut it, but folks, like if we actually, the technological advancements that have happened in the past 10 to 20 years alone have shown us it is possible, there is a pathway to powering our, society and our transportation with resources that don't kill us on the back end like it's that simple right the sun is constantly giving us energy the wind is constantly blowing in some places there's other opportunities like tidal power like hydrogen fuel perhaps that i've heard some really exciting studies about there are ways that we can power and transport our society that don't harm our children. And so first and foremost, that's one of the biggest things that we need to do. I would like to clarify also that individual actions are great, love it. You know, Aiden, if you could drive a little less, that's fantastic. Ben, I love that you eat a little less meat. No, you don't eat meat, you focus a little more on a plant-based diet, fantastic. And I fully encourage everyone to continue to do that. But really what we need to do is come together and ensure that we are number one, electing people that have this proactive thought and understand that this is something we need to be working towards. And then two, we need to vote with our dollar and you need to support companies that truly embody these values top to bottom. I mean, like fully, and I'm saying like, this means that you need to buy your food locally if possible. If you think that the thing you need already exists on the planet, you should go buy it secondhand. There's no reason to support new innovation and new No, you should always support new innovation, but there's no reason to support producing a new product if you know it already exists, right? I think another major thing that would be helpful, and I don't know if we'll see it in our lifetimes, but we've become really individualistic. We're a super individualistic society now, whereas what, you know, before, you know, we referenced before harking back to the days of maybe um, our society where we were more communal, right? And perhaps maybe we had one, this wasn't actually happening centuries ago, but what if we had one lawnmower for the neighborhood and not every single family owning their own lawnmower, right? Or just thinking of ways, like we've got to transform our thought a little bit into like, do we need all of the things we buy, number one? And if we do, is there a way to do it in a more sustainable fashion? Can we become more communal in some of the things that we buy or own rather than every single family, every single individual purchasing a new product every year on their own, right? So I think there are some great solutions on the forefront, but I think another thing about this is going to be some systemic thought changes, right? And really kind of reevaluating The ways that we live and the impact that that truly has. Um, I could go on about this for. (laughs) But those are some of the main things that I see in the needed. I don't think we're gonna get everyone to become vegetarian or vegan, but if folks can eat a little less meat and a little less dairy, it would do worlds of impact, as we know that those are also quite polluting industries as well. And I will say that folks need to do what's best for their health. I'm not their doctor. They should they should do what's best for them. But you know, with what we know, there are actions that folks can take, number one, and then also just joining an organization like Conservation Voters or Penn Future or any environmental organization, joining a community that you can collectively help to push for this broader systemic change is really necessary.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think the point that you pointed out of the solutions are probably out there, we just haven't discovered them yet, I think is beautifully illustrated by the COVID vaccines that just came into being of Every scientist in the world put their, I don't know what scientists carry, put their hands on the floor or hands on the ground and then just started pivoting all towards COVID vaccines. I think equally so that shows the promise and the potential of humans all working together and the power of technology, science, all coming together around a specific cause. So I think that also brings in the collaboration kind of idea that you noticed of one tractor for the neighborhood rather than each person having their own. But really, the thing that's coming to mind is just collaboration and community, both of resources and abilities across, whether it's scientists or communities, really is where a lot of the answers seem to lie. So definitely appreciate that kind of insight. And I think it's given, I can only speak for myself, but certainly myself, hopefully some of the listeners, a new perspective of seeing these seemingly individualistic problems in kind of a new lens. So We'd like to pivot a little bit towards your own experience. I was wondering if you could kind of tell the story of your adventure into the environment. Like, when did you realize this was important to you? What was it a specific event or just kind of like that always gut feel of, Hey, trees are cool. Let's try and protect them. <laughs> you know, what's, uh, what's kind of the story around <laughs> uh-huh. your relationship with the environment?
2: Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, trees are very cool. Just let's just put that For sure. Here. Um, yeah so i it wasn't a moment i will say you know growing up if you can believe it i was very very shy when i was little and i i spent a lot of time exploring and being outside and it's just where i felt invigorated and in awe of the natural world and all of the different species that exist and the natural cycles that just keep it going. And every year, you know, science was my favorite portion. You know, I wasn't, I didn't play sports growing up, but you could totally find me adventuring around outside or, you know, examining leaves or birds or rocks. And my grandfather on my mom's side, I think helped kind of jumpstart that interest. I have a very vivid memory when I was little of him going around in the backyard and teaching me what each plant was called. You know, I think as I grew older, that interest remained and I just felt most at peace and at ease when I was outside and living in nature. And when I started to learn in middle school and high school that our actions as humans were negatively affecting our planet that like broke my heart and I, I dedicated to learning more and more about it and so that's really it was sometime in high school and I can't pinpoint a moment Aiden but I just felt like the environment was my calling I knew that I loved being outside I knew it was this precious resource and I could tell that Maybe humans, we just there were just so many of us so quickly and we couldn't see the negative impacts that we were truly making on it. And I really felt like it's just too precious of a resource for us to go to waste. Um, it's our home. and and so I determined that I really wanted to study it further and and perhaps, you know build some sort of career in protecting our environment, especially when I learned, climate crisis that was coming for us in my lifetime, was going to disproportionately affect marginalized communities around the world. That was the absolute, I I already had a feeling that I wanted to spend my career on the environment, but that to me was the deal breaker. That was like, oh, there's no question. You know, I was very blessed to be raised in a middle-class family. In Pennsylvania. And so I wanted to be sure that the privilege that I was grateful to be born into, I used that time and my time on this planet to try to ensure that I was protecting our natural resources as best possible and ensuring that we were centering and prioritizing lifting the burden of environmental injustice on our marginalized communities because it is entirely unfair that that's how not that anyone ever said life is fair but this is at our own hands right this is humans have perpetuated this crisis and our taking part in systems that are hurting our brothers and sisters day in and day out. And so that's when I, you know, not only dedicated my own lifestyle and my own choices, right? I worked on these individual actions, right? Certainly I'm an avid recycler and I I don't eat meat. I, and I stick to a dairy-free diet for the most part, but in college when I started to learn about these systems at play, I knew that that was not enough. And I knew that while most folks care, and you know, that of course they care about the planet we're on. I know that life is so, there's so much to it and there's so much busyness to it that even as an environmentalist, I had trouble keeping everything straight and, and you know, ensuring I was spending my time on the best actions uh, and the most worthwhile actions to push for solutions. And so I wanted to make it easy for folks. I wanted to be easy for folks to take action to help protect our environment, right? If you've got a family and you're busy with kids and you've got your own career, how can I possibly expect you to also be an expert in what's best for our environment, right? Or what's the next best solution for you to take on for your family or who to vote for? And so that's when I really pursued this career in, in environmental advocacy, because I think it can be easy. And I think, you know, there are experts. Experts that are telling us exactly what we need to do or what solutions we need to push for. Uh, and that's how I found myself where I am now where myself or any of our coordinators can work with you throughout the week and throughout the months to understand, you know, what is the next best action for you to take for the environment whether it's pushing for a specific regulation or maybe there's a cool product out right you know that will help keep your family more sustainable right we we try to share all of that information with one another so that to make it easy so that it's not it's not a burden it's the information is provided for folks easily to help protect our environment but that's how i personal journey works you know i spend a lot of my time in nature i think a lot of folks can relate to the fact that it's rejuvenating it helps clear your mind right it helps it's such an amazing refuge and and i want to make sure that my kids and, and my kids kids can enjoy that for years to come and so while I know that I'm not, I can't do anything alone. This is a communal issue. This is, a, this is an issue that we all that we all need to help work on, no matter if we're in the environmental field, quote unquote, or not. And so my journey with the environment was born out of this love for and awe of our natural cycles and the deep desire to protect them for, for generations to come.
0: Yeah, a lot of great impact makers that we interview and we come across in this show there's almost like a commonality between all their stories and there's always a identifiable catalyst event that almost brewed that desire, right? For you, it was the acknowledgement, the recognitions that this collective issue that everyone cares so deeply about, in this case, our planet, the environmental causes are detrimentally affecting marginalized communities more so. And it's that injustice that uh, forcefully created this call to action for you. Uh, I share that because I also want to, I think we've, in the past hour or so, we've been talking on a macro lens about the importance of environmentalism, the importance of your mission statements and why you do what you do. I want to transition from a more macro lens into a more micro personal lens. And I know the two areas that you're also very deeply interested in is your wellness of your body and your minds. And I share that because I think it's the perfect segue because if you look at how environmentalism and climate change plays out, there's so many interwoven interconnectivity, even within the field of environmentalism. And we talked about how countries like China and India are forced to react to the reality that's unfolding right before their eyes. And I know it's similar to China and India, who wasn't too proactive about their initiatives, they were forced to react to whatever was happening. And now they're the four foreigners. I see that theme in your personal journey as well. I know that you didn't always take your health, your physical health, too seriously growing up, right? Although I think from our conversations and with the question you're provided, you've always been interested in the mental health aspect. And I think the current society likes to view physical health and mental health as separate entities, and they believe that those should be treated as such. But I think most people don't see how interconnected they truly are, just like how interconnected the environmental causes are for all aspects of our life. It's not just climate change. It truly has social and economical and social justice implications. So I would love to invite you to revisit your memory lane and go back to probably the most impactful moment in your life when you're 18, when you were being plagued and suffering a Crohn's disease and in the first initial outbreak and your takeaway from that experience that truly made you realize that you have to be proactive about your not just your mental health, but also your physical health, so that you don't have to be forced to react to the reality years down the future.
2: Yeah, thanks, Ben. I'd be happy to talk about that. I think your point about interconnectivity is an incredibly important one that I fear in our society today we almost purposely try to ignore. I wish we lived in a time, this might seem like a tangent, but you know, I wish we lived in a time where you know I knew the person that made my bread and I knew the people that made my clothes. And we are just so far removed now from all of those steps that we don't always realize the thing we may be purchasing or the action we may be taking is is truly harmful to someone else. And I think in the same way, even we were talking earlier about the healthcare system, another place where we really are doing ourselves a disservice by not looking at things in a more holistic view. There are specialists for every little thing for every piece of our body and yet what doctor is looking at all of them right supposedly our general practice doctors but we really need to take our health mental physical and spiritual health all into one and it's true Ben that when i was little you know i was so fascinated by the world around me and i was learning about all of these it's funny. I can't believe that we expect 18 year olds to know what they want to do with their lives. But, you know, I was obviously like many others trying to figure out what am I going to spend my time doing? And, and in doing that, I definitely lost sight of the need to take care of myself. And I definitely was, was way more concerned with learning and helping where I could and rather than really looking inward. And, um, it's true. And I was, Diagnosed with, When I was 12, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. It's an autoimmune disorder that affects the intestines. And, you know, I had a hard road throughout middle school and high school. I had to take a lot of pills and eat certain foods. But in 18, uh, things really hit ahead. And I think probably many teenagers can relate. It was one of the more stressful times I had experienced thus far. You know, I was trying to figure out what my future looked like. I was, I was having some relationship issues. My dad was recovering from a surgery that had taken cancer out of his body. And my Crohn's it hit its hardest moment yet. And I perforated my intestines and spent two years on and off. In the hospital and had five different surgeries and even through that process i was resistant to really focusing on what my body needed and what it was telling me and it was telling me that i needed to pay more attention to myself and and not just my body but my mental state and so uh, you know i can't remember a time where i didn't i didn't have anxiety i think i definitely have a very fast-paced brain and i i definitely worry a lot about a large amount of issues, but that is, even though that's brain that I was given, it, I have to take care of it. And if I didn't take care of both, it became very clear. You have to make sure that you and I know intellectually, it just makes so much sense. Um, and I think this is harder for folks, like intellectually, duh, of course you have to take care of yourself to keep a sustainable life and to keep to keep your health as best you can. Of course you do, but in practice, for whatever reason, that can be a hard lesson for some of us to learn. And it, and it was for me. And so, you know, in that bout of Crohn's, I learned a lot of lessons that I'm grateful to have learned early in my life, right? Hard times will come and you just have to get through it day by day. I actually kind of joke sometimes that having that experience almost prepped me for this pandemic time like i was i knew that this was going to be a long hard road and that the best thing to do is just try to find joy in small moments and you just got to put your head down and and deal with it and i know that this late stage pandemic this isolation has been really hard for a lot of folks and it's been difficult for me too but i at least had that practice round of just having to kind of push through these hard times
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple
1: Podcasts, and it would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.